Well, as Jay said, uh, this will probably, this may very well be the last time that, that I'm up here preaching. Uh, if you've been here, okay. <laughs> Laugh all you want, many a truth is said in jest. Um, <clears throat> and that's okay, because I'm out. Uh, anyway. <laughs> No, uh, for those of you who've been coming for a little while, you know that I've, I've been kind of taking a bird's eye view of 1 Samuel, uh, and uh, we will do that again today. We've, we're going to take a look at part of, as uh, Brian uh, spoke from, from 1 Samuel today, <clears throat> the reason Pastor Jason, <clears throat> excuse me, it was going to be a little bit longer because <laughs> we're in chapter 12, there's a lot of chapters left to get through today. So strap in, we're going to be here for a while. Happy Father's Day. Uh, <clears throat> no, we're, we're not going to, I don't intend on finishing the book today, so don't freak out. Um, I noticed no one clapped for that. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, no, it's an honor to be, it's always been an honor to be up here um, preaching the word, and uh, I, I've always, I always feel like I've got big shoes to fill uh, whenever I step behind this pulpit, because we have an incredible senior pastor here, and I don't say that lightly, I don't say that jokingly, I say that with full seriousness that, that this church has got an incredible group of elders and it's got an uh, incredible senior pastor that just brings the word every single Sunday. So um, I'm, I'm going to miss my time up here and, uh, and uh, whether or not you will, that's up to you. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, I think in, in, in society, as I think through what we're going to be talking about this morning, uh, it's, it's, there's no notes, there's not going to be anything up there, uh, so just kind of follow maybe the back of your bulletin. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be jumping around in First and Second Sa- or First Samuel, <laughs> you thought for a minute, uh, First Samuel chapters 12 and 13. Don't get too distracted by the fact that he just mentioned two full chapters uh, it's okay. We're going to be going through them rather quickly this morning. Uh, but uh, as I was thinking through this idea and how my goal is to destroy the pendulum, what we're going to be talking about is how uh, in society I often see this, this pendulum swing. And, and I remember hearing someone say, when, especially when it comes to politics, they said, the pendulum just swings. That's why one year for a term or two, uh, or you will have someone that is, is on this side of the aisle, and then it swings back, and then all of a sudden the country's in this side of the aisle, and then it kind of goes back and forth. We see that in politics. I, I think we see that in culture, fashion, right? We see that in fashion. All those clothes, gentlemen, that your wife told you you need to throw away because they're ugly. Now you wish you saved them because... Sure enough, some of them are coming back. I think with men's fashion, it's, if you ever notice this with men's fashion, it's easier. Have you ever watched a movie that's like a period piece from like the 1920s or the 1930s, and you look at what the guys are wearing, and you're like, that actually looks really cool. Women, you can't do that. Like, you're not allowed to, it's, it's just not allowed. You're not allowed to do that. You, you, don't, you don't, but for men, it's just easier. Um, you know, the 60s fashion is back. 80s fashion is back. Um, mom jeans, they're, they're back, uh, not for everyone, but for some that's kind of become fashionable now, um, 70s, nope, still can't do 70s, keep out of that, 
But with fashion, with media, with uh, how there's certain music that just somehow makes a comeback. I think of the 90s where all of a sudden swing music made this comeback, if you remember that. And you heard swing music all the time, which was wonderful. It's great music. Uh, but we see this kind of how it just, we, we, we follow this pendulum. And it's back and forth, and it's this way of life. And in, in life, it is kind of like that. We have the tides. You know, you think about the, the ocean tides, how it's a constant back and forth. Uh, we see seasons that it's, con- you know, spring, uh, summer, fall, winter, and it just kind of swings back and forth, and we see that. We have times of joy and times of sorrow. And with things like that, I often find myself thinking, if there was some way to kind of keep the pendulum in one spot, right? Do we want that? There's moments in our lives where we go, man, if I could have just sat longer in that moment, if I had just appreciated that spot a little bit more, and then, you know, oftentimes I feel like it comes on vacation, where you've got that incredible moment on vacation, it's just oh, I feel like I can breathe. And then you come back home and, oh, now I'm back home. We get like that. And, and what I want to find is, is that magic formula that kind of allows me to, to stay on that one end of the pendulum. Life, do you remember the, the little, I don't know, it's not a gadget, the little, I don't know, doodad, is that the technical name for it? I'm trying to think of some weird term that only Jay would know what it means, but I couldn't come up with it. But that little thing that you'd put on the desk, and it had the, the, the silver balls that were on the, the strings, and one would hit, and one would hit, and it would just keep going and going and going, and apparently if that bothered you, there was, there was something wrong with you. I don't know why that was the case. There was, there was something, you know, you have anger issues, or like, no, it's just annoying. It's not an anger thing. It's just, stop it. Um, but we see that it just keeps going back and forth, and it just seems to continue on and on. Sometimes life, I think, feels like that. It just keeps going on, and what I'm looking for is, as this pendulum swings to a high note, how do we keep that? How do we hold on to that moment, specifically in our spiritual walk with Christ? How do I keep those high points where I feel and I know that I am where I need to be spiritually. It may not be long, but I sense God's presence. It's not a perfect moment in life. It's not like we look at it and we say, oh, there was nothing going wrong and everything was so peaceful. Because we know that that's not reality. We live in a fallen world. But even in the midst of that turmoil, you still felt the presence of God. And, oh, if I could just hold on to that time in life where... He was there, and I knew it, and, 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 and the good and the bad, it didn't matter. It just, things were right. You ever felt like that? You had those moments where it felt right with God? How do we bottle that? How do we keep that? How do we go back to that moment? Have you ever tried to go back to a moment? Do you ever have a, uh, for me, the the best example I can think of, when you went on vacation and you did have just that peaceful moment. If I could just go back there. And maybe you were able to go back to that spot where you vacationed, and sure enough, you get there, and it's all the same. You know, the trees look the same, and the, and the grass is the same. Where Maybe it was outdoor. Maybe you went to that, that same small hotel, and you got the exact same hotel room or the exact same cottage. And sure enough, you open the door, and everything looks like it hasn't changed. Nothing has changed. It's per- 
but it's not the same, right? It's not the same. You, you can't grab hold of, of that feeling that you had. It's just not there. How do we do that? Spiritually speaking, how do we keep the pendulum from swinging back to being away from God? How do we keep it there as followers of Christ? How do we keep the pendulum of our walk with him on one side. There's no way to remove sin from our life, but we're given examples of what kind of decisions can bring peace with God and which ones bring strife. And one thing I believe that will help us is to develop a few coping strategies to deal with the ever-changing times in our lives. How do we cope in those moments to stay with God when it doesn't seem possible. We left off, if, if you remember, and I, you're not going to hurt my feelings if you don't, but if you remember the last time I was up here speaking, we kind of left off with Saul being coronated as king, and he was anointed king. They, there was a decisive victory against the Ammonites, who were, who were this constant battle with the Israelites. And so this was great. It was, it was over one of their main enemies, and Saul was, was relishing in his victory. He's loved by his men, and, and he shows, he truly shows some potential for being a spiritual guide as a king and as a leader. And so we kind of left it on this high point that things are going well and the pendulum had swung in this direction. And yet we know that with a pendulum, what happens? It swings back. It tends to swing back. So how do we keep that from happening? If we pick up in, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, I'm not going to go through all 15 verses that I want to talk about, but in the first 15 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 12, you have Samuel essentially giving kind of a farewell speech. He knows he's getting older. He knows that his, his place as a prophet and as a spiritual leader is going to be diminished because they have invited and, and voted on and coronated Saul. He is now the king, and the people are going to look to him as this leader. And Saul knows that his, or Samuel rather, knows that his role is being diminished. More than anything, Samuel understands, I'm getting old. I'm not going to be around for much longer. And so he gives this incredible speech that in reality he goes all the way to about, well, he, the, the whole chapter really is Saul's, or Samuel rather, his, 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 his farewell commencement speech. And it's phenomenal. It's this great, great moment in time. He's on his way out so he doesn't need to hold back. He doesn't pull any punches with the Israelites. He just kind of figures, oh, I'm, I'm going to die soon anyway, so if i got some bridges to burn, let's light them up, which is what I'm going to do this morning. No, I'm not going to do that this morning. So I said something like, man, you're a, it wasn't inappropriate, they go, it, but they go, boy, you're a pastor? I said, well, not anymore, so I can say what I want. No, that's not the case. That's not the case. 
But what he does is around verse 6 through about verse 15, he starts with these reminders to the people of Israel. Hey, don't forget how God took you. He starts all the way back with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't forget how Jacob's family was taken care of. They went to Israel. They were in Israel for hundreds of years. It went south at some point, and they became slaves. But even then, God did not forget his people. He sent Moses, and Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt. They saw the incredible miracles, and you can go back in your Bible history if you remember how he he led them by a a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He parted the Red Sea. He led them to Mount Sinai. He gave them the laws. He gave them all the things that they needed as a newfound nation to follow him, God, as the leader of their new nation. He led them into the promised land, the miracles that he did when he uh, tore down the walls of Jericho and how he defeated enemy after enemy after enemy that the Israelites had no business of defeating. God was in that with them. And yet, in this process, he kind of gives a reminder to them as well, not just of God's deliverance, but Israel's failure to continue to follow God. And if you read through Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, you see this. You see how God would deliver the Israelites. They would forget or ignore that after a period of time, and suddenly they would start following the old ways and do things their own way. The whole book of Judges is a huge pendulum going back and forth. They would follow God and things would be great. They would stop following God. They would get put into the hands of an, of an angry nation, someone who didn't follow God. They would be under them as slaves, basically. They would cry out to God. God would raise up a judge. They would be delivered from the other nation. They would start well again. Things were great. But then they would forget God. And, they would, and it was just this back and forth and back and forth. And he reminds them of this. And towards the end of his address, he gives a command. It's not necessarily an easy one, but he gives them this command in verse 14. If you could follow along, 1 Samuel chapter 12, 14. It's part of what Brian read this morning. If you will fear the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well, verse 15. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you, and your king. He says very simply, if you do what's right in the eyes of God, you will stay on this one side of the pendulum swing. As soon as you start to dismiss from that, and you decide that you don't like where this pendulum is, and you start going away from God, understand this, it will not be good for you. Parents, we've had moments like that with our kids, have we not? Where we've said, if you do X, Y, Z, if you do this, then it will be to your benefit. But understand this, if you do not do that, there will be consequence. You ever notice how the word consequence is always a negative term? No one says, you know, the consequence of your good work would be getting a gold medal one day. The the consequence? No, no, we say the result. We use that term consequence, especially with kids, to say this is going to happen. If you fail to heed my warning, child, you will find yourself in a position and in a place that you will more than likely not enjoy. It's very simple. 
It's not always easy, right? It's not easy, but it is simple. God never says this is going to be easy, but he does say this is a very simple principle for you to follow. Parents, we know that with, with our kids too. We go, this is very simple. Do this, fine. Don't do this, problems. And yet for some reason, we also remember parents as kids complicating that, did we not? Well, did they really, and we see Eve doing this, right? Well, did he really say not to eat the cookie? I mean, mom said I shouldn't eat the cookie. I didn't eat all of the cookie. I just took a bite out of one. I think I've told the story before about how my parents would say when I get home from school when I was a kid, do not watch TV when you get home. Do your homework. Don't watch any TV. My parents would come home. Did you watch TV? No, I watched no TV programs while you were gone. Subtle, right? You know what my reasoning was? I turned it off before the credits. That way, some, there's kids right now that are going, that's brilliant, that's brilliant. I could do that. But that way I could tell my parents, right, in all honesty, I watched no programs. Watched part of a program, watched 98% of a program, but I did not watch any full programs. Now, back in the day, you had a tube TV. My dad would just walk upstairs, put his hand on the TV, it would be warm, and he goes, you're a liar. Like, Ugh. So, parents, be aware. Flat screens, they don't do the same thing. So just kind of a heads up. But it's interesting how he's reminding the people, he goes through this and he says, you've made mistakes, you've made a lot of them, you've been making mistakes. There's method to this madness because the first coping strategy that he explains is that he reminds people of their mistakes. Remember the mistakes that you have made. This seems like a weird coping strategy when we're trying to eliminate this pendulum that, wait a minute, so when I'm right with God, I should be remembering all the things that I've done wrong? Not entirely. We're not supposed to remember those difficult times, those bad times where we made mistakes and go, well, yeah, I guess, well, if I'm going to make mistakes, might as well just keep making mistakes. I'm going to just sit in the fact that I made this mistake. He's not saying that, but he is saying, don't forget, it is very much within your capability as fallen human beings to make a lot of mistakes. What he's doing is he's explaining to Israel, it is up to you to not swing back. Because you've got the capability of springing back. Right now, you're here, you're where you want to be with the Lord. Things are going well. He's about to, to, to reiterate God's covenant with his people. You've got this king who seems like a spiritual leader. You guys are on this spiritual mountaintop right now. But understand this, your ancestors screwed up in the past and you have that same capability. Do not dismiss your past mistakes. In other words, don't dismiss your proclivity for failure. <laughs> Say, it is really easy for you to fail. So don't forget how easy it is to fail. And he encourages them to recognize their mistakes. It's kind of a risky move to remind us that we can't mistake our, uh, escape our past. But we also need to be reminded that we're not perfect. As Christians, we need to be reminded constantly of what we've been saved from. We forget at times the reason that Christ died on the cross for our sins. 
Not because we don't acknowledge God's grace and Christ's sacrifice, but we must never forget the extent of his grace and his son's sacrifice. Because the moment we dismiss our past, we become less reliant on God and more reliant on ourselves, which ironically, or not so ironically, leads to more mistakes. When we dismiss our need for a savior because we dismiss our past mistakes, we cheapen the grace that was shown to us on the cross. And we must not do that. We need to remember our mistakes because we know that we will probably make them again, but we also need to be reminded as well of God's sacrifice, which kind of leads us into the second example, the second coping strategy. Because Samuel brings up the past, but the second coping strategy is this. Don't let your past mistakes define you. He says this to them. Yes, you have done this, and this was wrong, and and our ancestors did this, and this was wrong, but we don't have to repeat those same mistakes. What a beautiful reminder. Man, he just got done knocking knocking me out at my knees. I feel horrible. He goes, yeah, yeah, but that doesn't have to be what defines you. Your past mistakes don't need to become who you are because God made a covenant with you, he tells Israel, and you have the chance to, again, stay here and not choose this way. As Christians, as 21st century Christians, we have the reminder of, God's grace. I'm not defined by my sins, but I know that they are an issue. But I also know I've been saved from them. There's hope for you to follow God. We can repent. And God says in 1 John 1, 9, that I will always forgive you. The only thing keeping us from doing this and from doing the right thing is quite literally us. It's us. The only thing keeping us from running back as the prodigal son did to God is our failure to run back. Well, God could never forgive me. Don't stop running back home. You have a father. There's a reason that Jesus gave us an example of the father of the prodigal son who is out there daily just waiting for us to return and then runs toward us to meet us where we are when we come back to him. Our past sins do not need to define us. Pendulum of the Christian life shouldn't swing from sin to sanctification, and then sh- it, but it should point us to constant sanctification, constantly moving towards God. Removing that swing starts with remembering what we've been saved from and remembering we're not defined by our past. And he gives a quick reminder of that in verse 15. In verse 16, this is total, it's a side note, but you can't ignore these couple of verses. In verse 16, Samuel does something really incredible. He's got a flair for the dramatic, I don't know what it is, but he says, now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. He says, all right, just stop for a second. God's gonna do something incredible in front of you. Why? to prove his power, to bring glory to him, to show you that he's serious about this. And he says, is it not wheat harvest today? 
In other words, are we not in the middle of the wheat harvest time? Now, to some of you, that means nothing. To some of you, that means a great lot. But at that time, the wheat harvest in Israel at the time meant it was dry season. It was going to be dry. This was not the rainy season. In fact, they would go often weeks without any rain, and that was totally normal in the geography of that region. Then he says at the end of verse 17, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking yourselves for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. I love it. Because in one sense, this is really, really cool. I mean, the fact that Samuel says, hey, look, you want f- I'm not joking with you. I'm not kidding around. God's not kidding around either. Let me, let me show you how little we are kidding around right now. Just like that. This was not a normal storm. It wasn't like Samuel could look out and be like, you know, everybody's looking at him like now. Samuel's up here, and all of Israel's looking out. He looks out in the, in the, on the horizon. He's like, oh, yeah, there's a storm coming. Oh, this could be good. I, th- I think this could be really good. You can picture Samuel saying this. There's not a cloud in the sky. Whatever meteorologists that were probably even worse back then than the ones we have now knew that it wasn't going to rain. There was no sense of rain. There was no hint of rain. It didn't smell like rain. The old men in the camp did not have their knees suddenly hurting because a storm's a-coming. There was none of that. There was nothing. And yet Samuel said, God is going to do something incredible. And the sad thing is, What really moved Israel the most was not Samuel's impassioned plea, but a weather change, albeit an incredible weather change. But that is what made them fear God. It was a dramatic moment in their life that kind of jerked them to reality. Don't forget, this guy, to make a storm like this, nothing God can do that without a second thought. Without a thought, God can do things like that. But he's in, he ends in verse 20. He reiterates how we stay to the right side of the pendulum. And verses 20 to 25, Samuel basically reminds the nation of Israel, start doing what's right this very day and don't stop. I am in your corner. I'm rooting for you this very day. Don't stop. I'm praying for you this very day. Don't stop. My question then would be this. How often do we have people that we know that are in our corner every day rooting for us? More to the point, how often are you like that, explaining to others, I'm rooting for you. I'm praying for you. Not not, not a, yeah, I'm praying for you, man. Oh, I'm praying for you. I just, I love you so much, I'm praying for you. No, no, no. I mean, seriously, Samuel, on his hands and knees, praying before God for the nation of Israel. Do we have people in our corner that we know of? Are we like that for other people? I think it's a good reminder. One of the, uh, to, to, to move along, one of the uh, really interesting quotes that I remember hearing years ago was, we need to sweat in preparation so we don't bleed in battle. I don't know who said it. It's brilliant. I should have just said I said it, but that, I'd feel bad about that, although I'd get over it. <laughs> sweat in preparation so you don't bleed in battle. There's always work to do. We must not rest 
on our laurels. And we begin to see this in Israel. Um, one of the things that I enjoy, fine, judge me for it, I don't care. I enjoy mixed martial arts. I obviously don't enjoy doing mixed martial arts. But I enjoy watching mixed martial arts. There's something about these guys as athletes to me like, well, that's disgusting and it's horrible and you shouldn't. I, I, okay, fine. All right, I'm the stronger brother. I get it. Let it go. I, but I enjoy watching it. There was one guy this past year that had this, uh, he, he, he literally, it was like, it, it was like uh, if you've ever seen the old school boxing matches where the guy gets punched and the guy just falls back. You know, just, it was like that, but it was in the octagon and this guy just had this incredible kick and just knocked this guy out cold. He was fine. I mean, probably had a concussion, but he was fine. He woke up, so it wasn't like something out of like a, a, a martial arts movie where the guy died or something like that. He was fine. He woke up. He's still a fighter, but this guy just, I mean, it was the most picture-perfect knockout. It was knockout of the year. The guy got, I don't know how many tens of thousands of dollars bonus for this. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was picture perfect. If you look up best knockout ever on YouTube, I guarantee you this will be in there. And it just happened like last year. It was phenomenal. I'm not going to play it out for you. I don't have the YouTube video to show you. But I thought it was interesting. What I thought was really interesting was after that fight, that guy that did that perfect knockout was interviewed several months later as he was preparing for his next fight. And what he said I thought was very interesting because he said, that was picture perfect. He goes, I'm not going to lie, that was awesome. I did it, I've watched it, it looked incredible. But I also realized it was once in a lifetime thing. He goes, I am not going to do that every single time I step into the ring. He said, there's no way. And if people expect that, then they're going to miss out. They're going to they're come up short. You're not going to enjoy this. So I'm not going to sit back and say, well, I did that once. I can do it again. He goes, no, I will never again for the rest of my life probably do that. But I'm still going to get in there and, for him, do my job. And I thought it was interesting. This guy could have sat back on his laurels and said, that's right, I got it. I did it once, I'll do it again. I'll do that to every guy that they ever put me in a match with. No, this guy got in there and he was humble. He's like, that's a once in a million time. You're never gonna see that again. He didn't rest on his laurels. And what we have here is Israel doing a little bit of that. It starts up in chapter 13, they have this battle. Saul ends up getting the credit for it, but what we're told in chapter 13 is that actually Jonathan is the one, his son is the one that actually won this battle. But they, but they start with this other coping strategy, and that is celebrating the victories. They celebrated this victory that they had. They enjoyed it, and it's, it's kind of a, a, a minuscule kind of a thing, but in chapter 13, towards the end of uh, verse 3 and verse 4, it's getting exciting. They're excited that they defeated these Philistines, and it's a good thing. We should celebrate. I think we as Christians don't celebrate enough. If, you, if any of you have ever studied, uh, really gotten into some of what are considered to be the more boring parts of the Bible, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you find out God's festivals, his feasts, all these other uh, times where he wanted the Israelites to celebrate, they are all over the Jewish calendar. 
They're celebrating like all the time. To a certain extent, some, some theologians believe that the Sabbath was actually, yes, it was a time to rest, but it was also in the Jewish mentality, it was a day of celebration, that they get to rest. But there were feasts all the time. Like the Jewish nation was a party nation. It really was. Because they knew how to celebrate. And there were so many things that they could celebrate. They had so many times where they saw God working in the lives of the Israelites and they celebrate. How often do we celebrate the times where we see God working in our lives? I think in order to stay on that one side of the pendulum, I think one of the things we can do is celebrate the victories that we see. Well, I don't want to make a big deal out of that. Really, because Jesus, remember Jesus used that parable of the woman who lost the coin and then found it? What did she do? She threw a party, which as a kid I couldn't understand. You just found money, so what do you do? You waste it on a party. And yet at the same time, I look at them, what else are you supposed to do? You celebrate. I lost something, I found it, let's party. It's great. I still remember there was a movie years ago that I remember seeing, I think it was, I, I, I can't recommend it because I don't remember it that well, but it was a movie called The Year of the Comet. I don't know if you remember this, it was kind of a romantic comedy, but it was all about this old, old bottle of wine that was worth millions of dollars. It was like, oh, we, you know, it was this whole movie about this wine and how it switched hands and who got it and how this guy eventually got it. And this guy finally wins it and he has it back in his family because they were the ones that made it, the ancestors or something like that. And, and these people are celebrating and all of a sudden off camera he is, pop. And everybody turns around like, what have you done? You paid like $3 million for this bottle of wine. What have you done? And he goes, what's the point of having it if we're not going to drink it? What's the point of noticing what God is doing if you're not celebrating in it? That's it's why when we go to a wedding, is it not fun? If you go to a wedding and it's dull, that's not cool. Right? No one likes a boring wedding. Why? Because it's a time for celebration. It's a time for excitement. It's a time to see, to be reminded of the beautiful time that God has given us. And so we celebrate things. And my coping strategy for keeping the pendulum on this side is don't forget to celebrate. Celebrate the little things. Celebrate the big things. Celebrate when there's no business celebrating because you go, well, I don't know, this is really a difficult time. Yeah, but God's taking us through it. Look at this and this and this. Yeah, but those are small things. It doesn't matter. Let's celebrate them. How often do we celebrate? Unfortunately, they went from victory to terror, and it goes to the other side again. There's victory, then terror. The Philistines start to amass troops again. Many of Israel begin to hide. Uh, it's kind of, it's almost like this, this, this mentality that often people have with, with, well, God's taken us from it. We forget that God did that. Instead, we focus on this, and we forget the miracle that God has done. It's like your car is not running well. It's making noise. You can't figure out what it is. You take it to a mechanic. The mechanic says your oil needs to be changed. It's well over 5,000 miles. You don't have a new car. You didn't use 
synthetic oil. You're supposed to do this every three years or three, three months, 3,000 miles. Why are you coming in now? You're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe what this mechanic did. It was incredible. It was just this horrible moment. I thought my car was going to just fall apart. I went in there. And all I did was change the oil. And then 3,000 miles later, you're going back to the mechanic. Look, I don't know what's going on. It's making this noise again. It's the same thing. It's, it's, it's been three months. It's been over 3,000 miles. Why didn't you come in and check the oil? Oh, my goodness, it's a miracle. I can't believe it. Instead of, instead of doing this, instead of just running away in abject terror, begin to realize, well, of course the Philistines are going to get upset. Of course the pendulum is going to want to swing realize that we sweat in preparation so we don't bleed in battle. We need to celebrate the victories but prepare for battle nonetheless. We need to do both at the same time. Finally and quickly, coping strategy number four, develop patience for God's timing. Develop patience for God's timing. The town, this area of Gilgal had become this wonderful place in recent history for the Israelites. They saw, saw that Saul was coronated there uh, a couple years before this passage. They saw that, that, that there was this renewal of the covenant of God's people with God towards the end of chapter 12. And so in chapter 13, we find that God or Samuel had told Saul, here's the deal, I want you to go to Gilgal, wait there for several days. When I come there, I will sacrifice for the Lord. You will go on your way to victory as a result of God being back on your side. But Saul, we find out, is not patient with God's timing. Chapter 13, verse 8, he waited seven days, a time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Well, I woke up, 7 a.m., Saul's not, Samuel's not here. What am I supposed to do? I see people leaving. People are heading out. They're, they're not feeling comfortable because we haven't started doing the sacrifice process. We haven't started uh, getting, getting psyched up for this big battle because we want to make sure that God is with us. And so Saul says, well, why don't you just bring the offering and I'll just do it because what's the big deal? I'll take care of it. God is going to be with us because of what we do, not because of who's here. Uh, and so we'll just take care of it. And you can picture the timing of this. It's probably like a movie, Right? Saul calls the people to come forward, and he's like, all right, let's do this. And so he starts a burnt offering. And just as it's starting to get to the point where, where there's the burnt offering and everything is perfect, he looks up over and, and he, oh, hi, Samuel. What are you doing? I didn't think you were going to come. I told you I was going to come. Yeah, but you weren't here. It's, it's still the seventh day. It's like 8 o'clock. You couldn't even wait one hour. Well, I, I just assumed that you weren't going to come because, you know, because what? Because God's timing isn't your timing? Because I wasn't here when you wanted to sacrifice? And as a result, Samuel has some pretty harsh words for, for, for Saul. This is it. You're done. You have not kept the command of the Lord. You are done. God has the same thing today. His timing is not our timing. His ways are not always our ways. We don't always see things the way he sees things because you know what? Here's a shocker. We are not God. We are not even remotely close to God. 
So when we look at God and we say, well, I don't like this timing, God says, I, I, I don't care. I mean, he does. He loves us. That's the weird thing is that God says, of course, I love you and I care about you, but I don't care that you don't like this timing because my timing's better than your time. I have three billion and infinite amount of other things that are taking place, and all you see is this, and you go, well, I don't like this timing. God goes, if you wouldn't even begin to understand how this is all being put together. You have a problem with the 1,000-piece puzzle. I've got an infinity-piece puzzle that you couldn't even get your mind around right now. So you've got to trust me that my timing is better than yours. So when we're on this side of the pendulum and we go, we start to fall this way, well, wait a minute, I, I don't like this. This isn't right. There's difficulties arising. There's difficult things going on. There's, there's, I, I, I planned for this. I, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm doing my devotions. I'm going to church. I'm reading the Bible. I'm singing. I am listening to Christian radio all the time. I'm doing all this stuff. I shouldn't be swinging back here. And God says, no, you don't have to swing back there. Just understand that when you're here with me, it's not always going to appear like everything is perfect because it's not going to be perfect. But my timing is perfect. So rest in me. Will you freak out? Yep, you're going to freak out. Why? Because you're not God. But rest in me. What kind of coping strategies do we implement to keep the pendulum from swinging back and forth? How do we keep it here knowing that the natural tendency is to revert back? I think we can take the example of the Israelites and apply some of these principles to our lives today. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, we do thank you so much. We thank you for the reminder of the Israelites that even though you are an incredible God and uh, an immutable God, a God that we cannot even necessarily fully comprehend, we know that you are also a God who loves us and has plans for us. God, we know that when we fall short, you still love us. There may be consequences to that falling short, but we also know that you are ready to forgive if we confess our sins to you. And we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that this week that we would be reminded of those times where it feels chaotic and we sense the pendulum shift. Father, may we be reminded that it is up to us to stay focused on you, to be reminded of your love, your sovereignty, your grace, your mercy for us. In your son's name, amen.